scripture this morning comes from Luke 1, 46 through 56. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of his bondservant. For behold, from this time on all generations will count me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, and he has exalted those who are humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. And Mary stayed with her about three months and then returned to her home. What Meredith just read is the song of Mary. It's the expression that she gave of how she was feeling, the effects she was experiencing from the birth of Jesus. Um, this is a beloved passage of Scripture. This is a well-known passage of Scripture. Something that uh, more formal church liturgy has used for years in their services. And uh, it can be sung or just read, as we've just experienced. Um, it's also a gift that the Holy Spirit has given us to see this insight into how Mary was affected by the birth of Jesus Christ. Uh, so that's what we're going to see this morning. How affected Mary, the closest you could get to the birth of Jesus Christ. And what I want you to be thinking about is, what effect does Christmas typically have on you? What effect does Christmas typically have on you and your faith? And I don't just mean what do you do during Christmas. I mean, what effect does it have on you? Does it make you nostalgic like it does me? I'm naturally very nostalgic anyway. I like going to all places where I've lived pointing out to Meredith every historical uh, spot of my life when we drive by, no matter how many millions of times I've done it before. Um, some of you, if you're honest, I think you'll have to admit Christmas, the effect it has on you is that it stresses you out. What effect should it have on us? That's what we're going to, going to be encountering this morning, and I want to pray, but before I pray, I have to draw attention to something really incredible. About this morning. This morning, we welcome Phyllis Ford back with us. Amen. And I think I speak for everybody in saying welcome back. We are so glad to have you back. Thank you all for being so great. Well, we love you. And we're very, very glad to. I'm very glad to see you back out there as I preach. It just hasn't felt right. So I'm glad you're back. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your many blessings this December. We are thankful that Phyllis is back with us, that you've provided a way for her to be able to get here. I look across this congregation and see evidences of your grace all throughout, and I'm just thankful. And Lord, now we all, with one voice united, come to you asking that you would help us to Study your word well, 
to hear your voice in it and respond rightly. Uh, we confess that that is a miraculous thing that your Holy Spirit has to bring about. And I need your help. We all need your help this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to move these mics back because they're, they're intimidating me a little bit. There we go. Is everyone doing okay this morning? Yeah. Second Sunday of Advent? Yeah? Yeah? I'm good. Uh, I appreciate Meredith reading this passage. I just think it's more effective to have a female voice reading Mary's song. Um, I was going to try to do it in a female voice. So I think this worked out better. So how did the birth of Jesus affect Mary? How should it affect us? Do you remember last year when we first got started in the Christmas season? One of my first sermons, I made a big point to explain that biblically, we don't have to celebrate Christmas. And what I mean by that is we're never told to formulate this huge tradition around Jesus' birth. We're told to remember his death and resurrection on our behalf through communion. We're told to do baptism. We're never told to do all this stuff. So I say all that to say it is optional. You don't feel any pressure. You don't have to do this. You don't have to go do all the shopping. You don't have to do all this decorating. Now, I don't know if that gives you any relief at all. But it is, it is optional. But if we are going to choose to do it, how should we do it? What are we shooting for here? What's the purpose of it? I think Mary sums it all up very well in the very first line of her song. In verse 46, she says, My soul exalts the Lord. Her soul exalts the Lord. Your translations may say it a little bit differently. Maybe it says, my soul glorifies the Lord. My soul praises the Lord. Maybe my soul magnifies the Lord. The literal translation of it is to declare great. I actually like magnifies best. Mary's soul magnifies the Lord. Now there's two ways to magnify something. We bring up the first picture do you know what these two things are? What's that on the left? Science test. I know you guys can't see. It's a microscope on the left, a telescope on the right. So, what do you use a microscope for? You use a microscope to make tiny things appear huge. To make insignificant things appear significant. What do you use a telescope for? To make huge things appear huge. Now, it's two very different ideas. Microscope make tiny things appear gigantic. Telescope make gigantic things appear gigantic. You can use it to look at Jupiter. Jupiter is huge. But if you're just standing outside with your naked eye, if you can see it, it just seems like a dot. So you have to magnify it to see it, and it really is quite huge. So my question for you at this point is, what is it that you're magnifying? Because I suspect that most of us have our eyes locked on a microscope, and we are magnifying the tiny, the relatively insignificant, to the extent that we're ignoring the truly significant, the truly, truly great God. 
You know, you were designed to worship and live for something really big, namely God. And I think because we're designed for that is why we're always looking to make everything big. Now, I wonder how much you've thought about God this week. Or even this morning, this Sunday morning, we're going to church. How much has God been on the forefront of your thoughts this morning? What's mainly been on your mind? What seems big in your life right now? For different people, it's different things. If people want to make their, their hobbies seem big, put all their time into it, feel that it's very, very important, when in reality it's, it's usually playing with the ball, but it feels big and important. Like you watch the NFL and stuff, it just seems like a big deal. I have no problem with football. But every once in a while, I think helpful to step back and say, it's a bunch of guys running into each other, falling down, <laughs> trying to carry a ball across a grassy field. Not that big a deal, really. <clears throat> See, Christmas is, <clears throat> it is a unique time of the year, and it's perfect for refocusing our eyes on what is truly significant and what just really isn't. And I suspect that many of you, through your microscopes, you're looking at your concerns, the challenges coming up, and they seem really daunting. Something like this, we'll bring up the next picture. If you woke up, or no, let's say you were sitting in church, here listening to me, and all of a sudden this, that size, burst through the wall right there. That would seem like a pretty big deal, wouldn't it? I would think so. I would probably stop speaking. Calmly, I would walk out to my car and drive away. Leave me alone for yourselves. Do you know what that is? Does anybody have a guess? What's that? No? No, I mean you're right. What? Fish? I'm close. It's a tadpole. That's a tadpole viewed by a microscope. <laughs> Why do I want you to do this so bad? I'm supposed to my job, and I'm supposed to yell scripture. 
We do. It's supposed to be a joyful time of year. All the songs talking about joy, joy to the world. So I'm like thinking off the top of my head and convinced there are others. This is a season of joy. But I wonder how many of you are limping into it, honestly, without very much joy in your hearts. Because I know you guys. And I know what's happened in your lives this year, and last year, and year before. I know there's a lot of major hurdles to get over, to feel joyful this Christmas. Very real things. But I think if we, like Mary, can let our souls magnify the Lord, as opposed to certain other aspects of our lives, that we can find this joy that Mary has. If you look in the next verse, verse 47, it says, My spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Some of you have very real pain. Very, very real pain. And I would never want to realize that. But I do need to say that we're celebrating Christmas wrongly if it is sucking us inward into ourselves, into our pain, into depression. If that's the effect that Christmas is having on us, then we're doing it wrong. Because the birth of Jesus Christ should do the exact opposite. It should reach in and pull us out of ourselves. Yes, it's not going to be joyful if we're looking within. But if that miracle can happen to where God pulls us out of ourselves and, and toward Him and worshiping Him and seeing Him, and, and toward those around us, loving them and serving them, we might just be able to rejoice like Mary was. And that's my prayer for you. But why? What about Christmas magnifies God in such a way that it brings joy? Well, Mary goes on to explain how it's working for her in the rest of this passage. She gives seven Seven reasons, basically. Seven lenses that are part of this telescope that she is looking through, magnifying God, making her very, very joyful. And I'd like to look at those with you this morning. Starting in um, 48. The first reason. For he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. He has had regard for the humble state of his bondslave. Some of your translations may say he has looked on the humble state, the humble estate of his servant. What she's saying here is she has, she has managed to grab the spiritual telescope. She has managed to turn her gaze toward God. And to her surprise, Guess what she sees? He's looking back at her. He's looking on her situation. The God of the universe. Looking down on us. Caring about us. It reminds me of some old western. I don't remember what it was. But I know it had Clint Eastwood in it. And the, uh, the bad guy was the same guy that played the... Uh, 
the bad and the good, the bad and the ugly. I don't remember his name, maybe. Not the ugly, but the bad. They were in a different movie together. And, and that guy was, was looking through some binoculars or, uh, what do you call it? Just one. He was looking through something at this western town. He was up on the second story of the building in his room and he was doing something sinister and he was looking around. And you see what he sees. And all of a sudden, there's Clint Eastwood looking back at him with binoculars. I don't know why it sticks in my mind. It reminds me of this. It, you know, some of you, one day, will come to a point where you're really going to need to seek God. Maybe you've not come to that point yet. And maybe you have. But in that day, when you do, and you're on your knees, and you're praying, and you're crying out, and you turn your eyes upward, you're going to be startled to see that He's already sitting there looking at you. Looking over your situation. Knowing everything about what's going on with you. That's what Mary found. He was looking on the humble state of his bond slave. She refers to herself as his servant. It's a very lowly view of herself in comparison with God. For behold, from this time all, all from this time on, all generations will count us. The second reason, verse 49. For the mighty one has done great things for me. And holy is his name. The mighty one, the holy one. Holy in its pure sense means set apart. Usually it's talking about morally, he's just pure, he's set apart, different from us. But what she's marveling at is that the, the apart one, the one that we have no hope of ever getting to, we can never reach God. He came down and did great things for Mary. The set apart one came to us. I heard recently, you parents of small children may want to remember this. If you had a stairwell in your home, there's a, I was listening to something and they were talking about family night, <coughs> devotions you can do with your kids, little ways you can teach them about God. Usually they don't respond well to just sermons. I try with my kids. I bring them a sitting and stop right there. And I just let them have it. But they were saying to teach kids about the gulf that stands between us and God. For that night's family night or devotions, you say, okay, kids, we are going to eat ice cream tonight. That's all we're going to do. But before we can eat ice cream, you have to get to me at the top of the stairs. So the kids are at the bottom of the steps. You're at the top. You say, we're just going to eat ice cream and hang out tonight. It's going to be great. We're going to watch your favorite movie. But before we can, you've got to get from there to me. And there's one rule. You can't touch any of the steps. <laughs> So they'll try, you know, getting a running start and fleeing their body up the steps. But there's no way they can get to you. And then you say, well, there's one rule I didn't tell you. You can't touch the steps, but I can. So hopefully your kids are smart and they'll figure out, oh, daddy, you come down and get us and carry us up. And then we can get to the top of the steps with you. And you say, yeah, you know, you know carry them up. And, and you say, that's what Jesus does for us. You can't get to God. So you got to ask him to come and get you. Does that make sense? It's supposed to make sense for kids. So, it should work. I thought it was kind of neat. But Mary is just marveling that God came down the steps in the form of Jesus to pick us up and bring him back to them. 
phrase in verse 50. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. That would be such a good verse to put on a coffee mug if you just took the first half. And his mercy is upon generation after generation. Awesome. But there's a qualifier. His mercy is upon generation after generation toward certain people. What people receive his mercy? Those who fear him. Say, our God is a fearsome God. You thought the giant tadpole struck fear in your heart. Try looking at the God of the universe. People have died just from coming into contact with something he had come into contact with. He's fearsome, but he's merciful. To those who fear him. Did you know, think about what you're afraid of. Did you know that you're actually enslaved by what you fear? Think about what you're afraid of, and then notice that your whole life is oriented around that fear. Avoiding it, coping with it, whatever. If you're afraid of people, your whole life is built around not looking stupid, not making waves, not offending. That's the first example that comes to my mind, because that's probably one of them. But if we could put aside that microscope and stop looking at all the people around us, what are they going to think of me? What if, you know, what if I hurt somebody's feelings? And if you can set aside that microscope and pick up the telescope and look at God, it repositions your fear. <coughs> Suddenly you realize these people are not the most tangible and real force to be reckoned with in the world. God is. And it puts all those other fears in perspective. They're, they're little tadpoles, really, compared to God. That's what Jesus was saying in Matthew 10, something, in Matthew 10, where he says, basically, paraphrasing here, don't fear those who can just kill a body. Fear the one who can kill the body and the soul. What are you afraid of? How does that compare to God? chief hypocrite of the church. Because these things sneak up on you. They're subtle, you don't realize it. And my wife can, can testify to this. I'll have one potentially difficult conversation that I know I'm going to have with me. And it is all I can think of. It's all I can think of. I'll try to do whatever, sort of prep, call somebody, whatever. But I just can't until that's dealt with. Because all of a sudden, my whole life is oriented around this person and this conversation. And it has never once ended up being a big deal once I actually am sitting there having a conversation. Never. But we're all prone to grab the microscope when we have something they're afraid of and just examine it and think about it. What if it goes this way? What if it goes that way? What if I accidentally just start shouting profanity at him? I'm a pastor. That's not cultural acceptable. I'm just kidding. I don't know. So far. Although, what is? When, it, when I should, and I, this is very fresh to me because just this week I had a couple of instances of this where I just, I couldn't do any of my work because I was so consumed by fear of these things. I should have set aside the microscope and looked at God and saw, no, I don't need to be afraid of the tadpole. It's actually quite tiny. 
compared to God. See, the problem is, if you don't have the right perspective of God, you can't have the right perspective of anything else in your life. All of the rest of your vision will be screwed up. If you don't have the right perspective of God, you cannot have the right perspective of anything else. You know how your perspective visually, it depends on comparisons. Like, you know, I could, I could look out here at some of you and you look like you're this big. But I know that's not true because I've stood beside you and I know that you're bigger than that. Let's say how much bigger. Our, our perspective depends on comparison. And too often we are, we are thinking about God and His size and His uh, contribution to the situation. Only after we've spent all our energy thinking about the little small factors of people and the dangers and whatever, until God just seemed like this tiny little thing, like Jupiter off in the distance, has no bearing on the situation anymore. Christmas is a great time of year to adjust our perspective. One more thing about fear. I was going to keep moving, but I'm not going to after all. Notice that, again, that it's the, those who fear God that receive mercy. That means two things. Some people don't receive mercy. And it's those people who don't fear God. Some people don't receive mercy, and it's those who don't fear God. Maybe Christmas for you is another opportunity for you to stand back and say, am I in the Christian faith? Do I fear God? Or do I go to church, yet look at every other factor of my life as being more real and more prominent than God? Because there are people who live their whole lives with their face fastened to their microscope, and they'll never look up and see God at all. And many of those people are in our churches. It's very easy to be churchy and never fear God in America. Okay, I will move on this one. Verse 51, the next reason that the birth of Jesus magnifies God to Mary. He has done mighty deeds with his arm and scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. Did you know that pride was the original sin? There was this angel, a Lucifer. He was a beautiful angel. But in his pride, he decided that he wanted to be worshipped, not God. So God cast him down to earth. He tempted Adam and Eve with the pride of thinking... I know God said this, but I'm going to do this. Because I'm... I know better. Pride is the undergirding sin underneath all sin. And in the birth of Jesus Christ, God scattered all that. In the birth of a baby, the most humble thing you can imagine, a, a baby born to a rural teenage girl in the middle of nowhere, he struck the death blow to pride. And you'll notice 
goes on, she starts to talk a lot about humility versus pride. In fact, let's just read. Let's just read the next two verses and see. I'll start back at 51. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. Something about the birth of Christ just dissolves pride and selfish ambition and greed. If we're doing it right, if we're celebrating Christmas right, pride, selfishness, selfish ambition, and greed <coughs> should just dissolve. God didn't show any of those attributes when he came down in the form of a baby. And these things are, interestingly, pride and, and thrones and riches, they are powerful microscopes. If you have a lot of pride, you cannot take your eyes off yourself. If what you care about is authority and power and being the one on the throne, the one on top, that's all you can think about. If riches are what you worship, all you can think about is your stuff, your bank accounts, your money. And the antidote is humility and loneliness. And here, poverty, the poor, the hungry. It's the hungry that he feels with good things. And it's the rich that he sends away empty hand. Some of you have been humbled as of late. Financially, maybe. Some of you have been humbled as of late. Investments that you thought as you set for life, suddenly you realize, no, they don't. Some of you feel lonely this season. But you know what? That puts you in such a better position to celebrate right to magnify God and not your kingdom. And to experience the joy. The joy we're supposed to be experiencing. The last one I mentioned in verse 54. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. What's she talking about? She's talking about the fact that Israel has been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for a Messiah for centuries and centuries and generations and generations. How long would you wait before you said, you know, I don't know if this thing is real. I'm going to go be Buddhist or something. Or probably right here, just go watch TV. A lot of Buddhists. The Jews waited and waited and waited. And in the birth of Jesus Christ was a resounding note that God is trustworthy. He really is trustworthy. The promises that Tom and Julia handed out to, in the Sunday school party, you can trust those. You really can. But your eyes have to be locked on God and who He is. God loves you. He came down here to get you. 
He is fearsome, the most fearsome force in the universe to be reckoned with, yet he is merciful to those who acknowledge that and fear him. He is mighty, he is strong, he fights for the underdog, the humble, the lowly, the poor. He is their champion. And he is trustworthy. Now I really want each of you, and each of you families, to have a joyful Christmas. I really do. And I want to as well. This is the path to that joy. Magnify the Lord. In our house-to-house groups this week, you're going to talk a lot more about maybe how, how can we do that. I encourage you to go. But for now, I'm closing out this sermon. I love you too. I want you to have a joyful Christmas. You won't have a joyful Christmas if you're trying to derive joy from your circumstances or your family or your bank account. But you can have a joyful Christmas if you derive it from God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that through your Holy Spirit it would be powerful in our hearts this week. And I pray that you would reveal to us what we are magnifying. What is the most prominent thing in our hearts and our minds that is keeping us from the joy of just getting swept up and lost in you, and worshiping you, and trusting you, and living the adventure of obedience to you. And sinking down into the security of trusting your promise. Lord, help us. We need your help. And I just pray over everyone here. You know these situations that, that, that are on my mind for people who are facing, facing a difficult couple of weeks ahead in many ways. And I pray that this would be the most surprising wonderfully joyful Christmas because of how well you love them, even in the place of that pain. And we look to you for these things with confidence in Jesus' name.